Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, Phil. The Jake Shields era has begun. I'm really excited about this show. Some great fights. Strike Force continues its smooth slide into the mainstream, high-level production on Showtime. And I know we're going to get there, but Mike Kyle, uh-huh. there. Very, very, very unsportsmanlike. We're, we'll we're gonna, about. we're. I think we're gonna disagree a little bit on that one, but, but, well, we'll agree and we'll disagree. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's yeah. No, this is great. I'm. I Jake Shields has arrived, so this is this is really good stuff. I want to welcome our our listeners. Inside the Hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force, which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. And on today's episode, we are covering Lawler versus Shields, which was the second Strike Force event to take place in the quote-unquote Showtime era. Card features some really heavy hitters, both literally and figuratively, including Robbie Lawler, of course, Jake Shields, Nick Diaz, Scott Smith, Joe Riggs, Phil Baroni, Andre Arlovsky, and Brett Rogers. Huge card, lots to get to. So we're going to get to that in just a second. We do want to go over the fallout from Shamrock versus Diaz. At that event, several new stars really made their mark in strike force with Brett Rogers blistering a bongo Humphrey with knees in a heavyweight bout. Chris Cyborg ragdolled Hitomi Akano in just a complete mismatch. And then Nick Diaz stopped the legend Frank Shamrock via TKO in the main event, which would end up being Frank's very, very last fight. And it wasn't known at that time it would be his last fight. So, you know, it wasn't like, oh, okay, well, Frank's done. But they, he said in the cage he would plan to come back. But this would be the it. this would be it for the legend. And just as a quick plug, if you haven't listened already, our most recent episode is my second interview with Frank Shamrock. We talk in depth about the Nick Diaz fight, including the buildup, the fight itself, the aftermath. We also discuss uh, Ken, uh, Ken Shamrock exiting from a main event bout against Kimbo Slice in Elite XC, and Frank just barely not being able to step in to take his place. We also talk about Frank almost battling Ken in a pay-per-view fight. So there's a lot that we get to. If you haven't already, make sure you go back and check that out. But also at Shamrock versus Diaz, hands of steel, Scott Smith would follow up on his brutal first round knockout of Terry Martin at destruction with a come from behind victory over Benji Raddick in the fight of the night. Such a great fight. Definitely worth going back and checking out. And then lastly, Gilbert Melendez would beat Rodrigo Dam for the, or Dom as you and I, as Josh, you and I went back and forth on whether or not the, the right way to say that was Dom, and, and we're, that's what we went with. Uh, but they battled for the Strike Force Interim lightweight title after Josh Thompson had to pull out with a leg injury. And again, the event was the first Strike Force event to be featured on Showtime under the terms of a new promotional agreement. We detailed that on our most recent event episode as well, so make sure you check that out uh, in the archives. All right, let's talk about the fight announcements. Strike Force Lawler versus Shields was announced to take place on June 6, 2009 at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Originally, Jake Shields was supposed to take on Joe Diesel Riggs at Shamrock versus Diaz. However, Shields was lukewarm to the idea of fighting Riggs and decided that uh, he didn't want to do it. He didn't feel that, that Diesel was a, a top fighter. So when he was offered a main event slot against Robbie Lawler at the June Strike Force event, instead, he jumped at the chance. And this would be Shields' first fight at middleweight after competing exclusively at 170 pounds in career uh, in his career up to that point. The June card was also set to feature Hinato Babalu Sobral, Rafael Fejal Cavalcante, 
excuse me, Cavalcante, Phil Baroni, Evangelista Cyborg Santos, Gio, Joey Villasenor, and Kim Couture. But as per usual, there are a lot of changes made, and several of those names did not end up appearing. Instead of Shields, Diesel would end up locking horns with Phil Baroni. Uh, Riggs was not happy about Shields pulling out of their fight, but he was excited about scrapping with Baroni, which was a matchup fans had hoped to see in the UFC for years. In addition, Babalu would end up, uh, he, he was actually scheduled to make his first def- defense of the Strike Force Light Heavyweight title against Feijal, but he had to pull out in order to prepare for the birth of his second daughter. He would be replaced initially by Jared Hammond, another elite XC veteran, but Feijal would have to deal with a second opponent change when Hammond, Hammond broke his nose, so instead he would take on the aforementioned com- controversial slugger Mike Kyle, which we will discuss in a bit. Then in a quick turnaround for both fighters, Nick Diaz and Scott Smith would end up being matched together and they would tangle in a highly anticipated scrap. And this one had fight of the night written all over it and it would deliver. Uh, and then it was rumored that Brett Rogers would take on Alistair Overeem on the card in a very intriguing matchup, but Overeem would suffer a hand injury in a barroom brawl back in Holland, which kept about and likely the Reem's hand on ice. Instead, Rogers would take on former UFC heavyweight champion Andre Arlovsky in a big step up in competition for the undefeated brawler. And then rounding the card out, former UFC heavyweight champion Kevin the Monster Randleman, one of my personal favorites, would make his Strikeforce debut against IFL veteran Mike Whitehead, who would also be making his Hexagon debut. All right, we've officially entered the Bellator era. Technically, we should have discussed this as the as part of our last event episode as the, the first official Bellator MMA event took place right around the same time as Shamrock versus Diaz. However, that episode was extremely packed so so we decided to kind of hold off and so we're discussing it now going forward we are going to keep an eye on what's going on in bellator and discuss any major happenings we're not going to cover every close major event like we do at the ufc uh, but we will keep you in the loop on major moments bellator as you may or may not remember used to run a more tournament style approach to its events so the events were, were structured a lot differently than the UFC, uh, much more of a TV-driven product, essentially. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely shone through in how they handled things. But they did have some very familiar fighter sign. They had George Masvidal, Eddie Alvarez, Hector Lombard, Lyman Good, former UFC middleweight champion Dave Manet, Alexander Slomenko, Travis Brown, Uriah Hall. Several of those fighters were not big names yet at that point. So uh, the promotion definitely had an eye for talent, for sure. And the initial Bellator champions, these guys all won their belts in tournaments were Joe Soda at featherweight, Eddie Alvarez at lightweight, Lyman Good at welterweight, and middleweight was Hector Lombard. But we will discuss Bellator more in the future. All right, on to the UFC. UFC champions at the time of uh, Lawler versus Shields was BJ Penn at lightweight, GSP at welterweight, Anderson Silva, of course, at middleweight. For the third straight Strike Force event, we had a new UFC light heavyweight champion as Leota Machida had knocked out Rashad Evans at UFC 98 on May 23rd to become champion. And then finally, Frank Mir was the UFC interwoman heavyweight champion while Brock Lesnar was the heavyweight champion. This would soon change as these two would face off and the title uh, would be would be unified. But closest major UFC event held a week after Lawler versus Shields was UFC 99. It was the first UFC event to take place in the country of Germany. The event drew close to 13,000 fans for a gate of 1.3 million while garnering an estimated 360,000 pay-per-view buys. Notable bouts included Dan Hardy getting a split decision over the Irish hand grenade Marcus Davis. Mike Swick TKO'd Ben Saunders. Krokop stopped Mostafa Al-Turk with punches. Cain Velasquez, Velasquez got a decision win over Czech Congo, and Rich Franklin also got a decision win over Vanderlei Silva. 
How did Cain Velasquez get a decision win over Czech Congo? That sounds like a, a mismatch, but whatever. I'd have to well, go back and watch that if, fight. If you look at Congo, Congo actually has a lot of decisions on his record. He 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 tends to uh, he tends to go to decision pretty often. So I, I he's I a tough one, tough one to finish. Then yeah, yeah, he's definitely he's definitely a tough one to visit uh, finish for sure. And he's also uh, a guy that just doesn't always get a lot of finishes himself. So, you know, kind of a tough out. But, uh, yeah, I just looked at He's got 30 wins. 12 of his 30 wins come have come by way of decision, and seven of his 11 losses have come by decision. Okay. So that's, I mean, 19 out of 44. I mean, you're talking almost half his fights end of decision. So, and for a – got to remember, for a heavyweight, that's, that's, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a big deal. They He had – one, two, three, four, five, six straight decisions in Bellator. Wow, I also didn't realize Czech has been in Bellator. His last fight in the UFC was 2013. Mm, wow, mm-hmm. I, I did not realize that. But, yeah, if you look at his Bellator record, he, he literally had a run of six straight uh, decisions that were, were all, you know, were all decisions. Um, his last his last fight was a, a decision loss, a split decision loss. So, yeah, he just goes to decision a lot, so I, I – I haven't watched that fight, but I would assume that that had something to do with it. But good question. Yeah. All right, let's get to Strikeforce Lawler versus Shields. It took place again on June 6, 2009 at the Scott Trade Center in St. Louis, Missouri, with this being the first Strikeforce event ever held in the state of Missouri, which was also the furthest east the promotion had ever ventured at this point. So this was this was a big deal for the promotion. They were looking to expand nationally, get outside of the West Coast, and really make their presence known. So this was this was a big deal. The event drew 8,867 fans to the arena, and there were an estimated 275,000 viewers on Showtime. The commentator, te- uh, the commentary team would be different than it was in the previous event. Uh, Gus Johnson and Mara Ronaldo would both be back, but Frank Shamrock would be replacing uh, uh, Pat Militich as the color commentator for this one. So interesting uh, to see that. Get Gus again once again would be handling in cage post fight interviews, and of course the man with the golden voice, Jimmy Lennon Jr., would be back as the ring announcer for this one. Which, on a, a very quick side note, this just just came to mind. Uh, I I watched uh, Hot Shots with my wife over the weekend. You remember that with the Charlie Sheen parody film? I have I've heard of it. I have not seen it. Oh man, if you're a parody fan, it's awesome. Like it's really funny. If you're a Top Gun fan, mm-hmm. you should actually you should absolutely see it. Which I actually saw Top Gun for the first time this last year. Actually, I'd never seen it before. Uh, but it parodies Top Gun. It's very very funny. They do a Rocky like parody scene. And guess who the ring announcer is in the Rocky parody scene? Uh, it is Jimmy, Jimmy Lennon, Lennon Jr. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is Jimmy Lennon Jr. And it's funny. They they make a joke saying that both of the fighters were represented by Don King. And the, and so Jimmy Lennon Jr. comes in, makes the you know the fighter announcements, and and says that they're both rec- uh, represented by or I don't know if it was him or the commentary so they're both represented by Don King, and then there's a you know like one of the fighters throws a punch and the other guy goes and and you know misses by six feet and the other guy goes down so it's a, the fix is in, <laughs> and Lennon Jr. immediately steps into the ring, grabs the mic, says you know. Uh, we, hey, fake folks, there you go, and have a great night. Be safe, and like very quickly gets out of the ring because he knows there's about to be a riot. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, just a little, little, little side thing for Jimmy Lennon Jr. that I, as I know you're a fan, I thought you might appreciate. I'm, I was just happy that Frank Shamrock uh, replaced uh, Milit Militech Militech. That's yeah. why they replaced him because I can't pronounce his name. Yeah, That's why. There you go. <laughs> there you go. 
Uh, yeah, you know, it, uh, Frank does a good job, and and so we'll we'll, we'll get into all that. But uh, apparently, you and I discussed this on our last event episode. Strike Force and Showtime, really more specifically, had started this thing called All Access. Uh, it was a feature where, for an extra twenty-five bucks, Showtime viewers could view the fights through multiple camera angles, with the ability to toggle between them, choose which broadcasters they were listening to, interact online, etc., etc., make predictions, all kinds of stuff, and, and so essentially, kind of be like a producer and and control how they view the event. Uh, and apparently it went pretty well because they brought it back for this event and they added something called cage cam, which was basically a ref cam that was mm -hmm. attached to obviously to the referee's head. So uh, it didn't, um, this in the, the whole event is not on fight pass, UFC fight pass, only individual fights. So I didn't really get to see, you know, the extras with the, with the cage cam or anything like that. Um, but, but it, yeah, again, must've gone well, uh, because they, they did bring it back for this event. So I thought that was worth worth mentioning a couple of the the scenes on the fight pass are from the cage cam there nick diaz there's a moment when he's first in the cage where it's definitely the referee's perspective but what i find interesting about fight pass is why, why is there no announcing on some of these fights it's it's yeah i'd love to know why they took that out or it didn't exist i mean it has to exist it's, it was on showtime i mean it has to be there but yeah, I, I do not understand it. I There just seem to be, again, they clearly have the event footage, so why not just put the whole event up? Like, I don't I don't understand this at all. So, I, you know, I'm not an archivist. I don't, I don't work in that type of content, so I don't know, but it's kind of frustrating, to be honest with you. Yeah, so. I just got to have more Gus Johnson. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's why. Which <laughs> I, I heard him, he was doing, a, like, a football promo thing. So, I, like, I happened to hear his voice. I'm like, oh, that's Gus Johnson. So, <laughs> uh, anyways. All right, well, let's jump into the card. Uh, not a, We're going to spotlight a couple fights on the undercard. Um, there's a few to, to get through that, you know, aren't really – we're not going to discuss too much. But in the opening round, uh, fight, 155 pounds. Pat Benson, Benson defeated Dave Cochran via submission coming by way of armbar at 242 of the first round. Uh, in the second round – or the second fight at a 205-pound bout, Booker DeRouse, it looks like, uh, D-E-R-O-U-S-S-E, -S -S -E, maybe DeRouse, uh, defeated James Wade, Wade via TKO coming by way of punches at 406 of the first round. Then in a middleweight bout, Lucas Lopes uh, defeated Scott Venta. I heard it might be Lopez. It's L-O-P-E-S. Um, apologies if I missed that. I know I, I, I'm familiar with Lucas's career a little bit, uh, so I know he, he's something of a name. So my apologies there if I missed, missed the, uh, mispronounced the name. But he defeated Scott Ventimiglia via DQ. Come, why are all these hard names on <laughs> At the beginning of this card. Uh, <laughs> beat him via DQ, DQ coming by way of illegal knee at 326 of the first round. Then in a catchweight bout at 175 pounds, Jesse Finney, who I know is from the St. Louis area, defeated Josh Bumgarner via submission coming by way of Kimura at 155 of the first round. All right, this brings us to our two spotlight undercard fights, and there is a bunch to get to here. And a welterweight bout, 170 pounds, Tyron Woodley defeated Sal Woods via submission coming by way of arm triangle choke at 420 of the first round. Of course, Tyron is from the St. Louis area. He was a, a Mizzou wrestler, uh, so this was a nice you know, homecoming for him. Very, very early on in his career, record of only 2-0 at this point. Sure Dog did a prospect watch feature on him, spotlighting 
Uh, his story, very rough upbringing, one of 13 kids raised mostly by a single mom, abandoned by his father at a young age. Woodley had fallen into some some bad choices, but had risen out of those to become a champion amateur wrestler. He finished 48-0 and as a high school senior and won a state championship, which landed him at the University of Missouri, where he l- earned two-time All-American honors and became the school's first conference champion. Uh, once he got his MMA career going, he, tr- he had tried out for season nine of the Ultimate Fighter, and he had been in line for a, a contract with the Lead XC before the promotion folded. Um, he had also done some training with ATT and AKA ahead of this uh, this fight, his Strikeforce debut. So he was definitely someone to keep an eye on. Uh, Woods was much more experienced with seven pro fights, but he was only two and five. So this was a good test for a very young Tyron Woodley. And great showing for him in this one. I mean, his striking early on was very much on point, especially for a wrestler. Uh, he got a lightning fast pickup and slam takedown early on. Very nicely done. Then used some jujitsu to advance position on the mat. Later in the round, he got another nice slam takedown before sinking in a modified arm triangle choke to earn the tap. And very, very nicely done for for Woodley. I mean, he, uh, he you know, future champ here, showing off a, a well-rounded skill set uh, very early on in his career. Yeah, Woodley's stand-up was great here. I mean, I think because of all the background you talked about, and obviously at the time, he was framed as this great wrestler. But his stand-up was crisp, and he's one of the few wrestlers who also had a really strong stand-up game. And we got to see signs of that here. What's great about this fight is, you know, he's a little bit smaller, a little bit skinnier. He's very muscular still, but he's just hungry. He's a hungry young fighter, and he's throwing his hands like a boxer, quick, slick. Uh, he did a great job with the stand-up, and, and, and so that forced the fight to the ground game because if you're getting beat in the stand-up, then, you know, Wood doesn't want any part of the stand-up. So, you know, Woodley took him down, too. He wrestled him. Um, great, great showing. We're going to talk more about Woodley. He became a better talker by the time he got to the UFC, not much of a talker at this time. And I don't think Strikeforce really knew at the time like what they had in terms of he wasn't just a good fighter. He had the potential to be one of the best. Uh, but it was clear here that uh, athletically, skills-wise, he was a star on the rise. And he looked great in this fight. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh, Woods would be back the following year for Strikeforce, actually taking on Michael Chandler. Uh, while Woodley would, of course, also be back and he would really build his career inside the hexagon. We'll be talking uh, more about him in the future, of course, and I hope to have him on the show. Uh, I did have some interaction with him early on his career. I actually picked him up from the airport for one of his strike force fights at one point, and he was definitely quiet in the car. <laughs> He's just not, <laughs> not, not, a, uh, just not a super talkative guy, um, yeah. not super charismatic. He's very opinionated. He's very good online, you know, social media and everything, but... Um, yeah, he, he's kind of like, he just doesn't have, doesn't have an obvious charisma as I guess a, a way to put it. So not being, you know, being kind of soft-spoken and not, you know, he doesn't show a lot of emotion. Um, I, f- I feel like he kind of can be, it's easy to ignore him in that, in that sense. And, you know, maybe that's why he wasn't built up as much as he could have been, but you know, he's out there a lot now. So, uh, so he seems to have, have overcome that. Uh, but moving on to essentially the main event of the undercard in a 205-pound bout, Mike Kyle defeated Rafael Feijão Cavalcante via KO, 
coming by way of punches at 405 of the second round. Feijal really was coming in with some fanfare here. He had trained with Anderson Silva and Minotaro Noguera. He had won three straight in Elite XC before the promotion shuttered, and he held a record of 7-1. and one. Uh, He was supposed to fight Babalu for the Elite XC light heavyweight title in November of 2008, but that fell apart when the promotion went under. Then they were supposed to fight for the Strikeforce belt, but Babalu backed out due to family obligations we discussed earlier, and now Feijal was taking on Mike Kyle. I think it's worth mentioning, Feijal had a very interesting backstory. He's from a, a small town in Brazil. He'd actually trained to become a veterinarian, uh, in fact, he was very close to becoming licensed as one, but instead, Cavalcante had crossed paths with Minotaro Noguera, who saw Feijal as a future MMA champion. Feijal's dad wanted his son to continue on the career path he was on, but Big Nog made a made it made him a promise that if your son doesn't become a champion, I will pay his bills for the rest of his life. Uh, he even paid his bills while he trained, which is you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Pretty crazy. I, you must when it, you know eventually Feijal would win the Strike Force title, and you got a big nog had to be breathing a sigh of relief <laughs> at that point. It's like, oh god, now I don't have to pay this guy's bills for the rest of his life. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know, kind of coming in with some fanfare for sure. Mike Kyle, on the other hand, twelve six and one coming into this bout, he'd fought twice in Strike Force before. He had lost to Wayne Cole in very quick fashion the previous year at Shamrock versus Lee, but had won two straight in regional promotions since that defeat. And, uh, you know, we've discussed him. He's a very controversial fighter. He'd served a very long suspension for continuing an attack on a downed fighter after defeating him. And uh, he'd even he'd gotten away with biting Wes Sims during a fight in the UFC. I think it was UFC 47, which we've discussed before. So he, he definitely had a bad reputation. Looking to make a, a statement here in this Strike Force light heavyweight ch- division fight and kind of seems, you know, get himself viewed as more of a serious contender that that's, you know, again, worth being taken seriously. So let's jump into the fight. Uh, these guys were swinging heavy leather early on, very little setting up with jabs or combinations or anything like that. And that's really how the first round went. Lots of loading up and swinging, both fighters landing a few, but, but missing a lot. Uh, at the end of the round, Kyle landed a straight right after the bell. And I mean, it was... Josh, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I, It was pretty borderline. I mean, he had kind of started the motion, but he definitely didn't hold back. And for a guy with his reputation, just not a good look and not so, – it's something you got to do everything to keep yourself from doing, you know? Yeah, when you know you have a reputation and you know you've committed these sins in the past, it's something that you got to be watching for. <clears throat> um, less concerned about this – than how the fight ends, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but I mean, Kyle was a dirty fighter. I, I don't I don't care, um, you know, who thinks otherwise. I mean, the facts speak for themselves, and I just did not like the sending. But go ahead, Phil. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, well, in the second round, some someone finally went for a takedown. Fajal landed a very nice double leg. Uh, did a little bit of damage on the mat, but Kyle was able to stand buck stand back up after a bit. From there, I, I just I feel like Fajal just was gassed. Like he just he looked tired to me. He took some really deep breaths, wasn't moving around very much. Kyle was still pretty fresh, landed a combination that dropped Cavalcante. The ref was not in the best position, and Kyle landed some brutal shots to the face on the mat while Feja was clearly out. The Brazilian was flat on his back for a while while the doctors worked on him, eventually getting to a sitting position. Kyle did some yelling I don't know who he was yelling at, but he was yelling gesturing at somebody outside of the cage, and I, at first I thought he might have been doing it towards uh Feijal's corner man uh cornerman Anderson Silver and Minotaur Nogueira but then when they came in the cage he did show them respect but uh, a big win for Kyle I mean no matter how you slice it big big win for him yeah I mean I don't know who he was yelling at either but I was really disappointed in this fight 
So <clears throat> Fei Zhao is a better fighter. He should have won this fight, but he didn't. He got caught. He paid the price. He got tired. I don't, I don't know what happened. Um, you know, he was fighting like a, a veterinarian in this fight. I mean, he, he was not... He was not into it after the first round. He seemed really lackluster. Um, his body was dry. He was not moving. He was just kind of, kind of stalking a little bit. Um, it was easy to see uh, Kyle's right hand, the one he dropped him with. I mean, you could see he was loaded up. It was going to happen. Fajal kind of got a little bit of a hand up, but he didn't really react in time. I don't know how you can justify this, Phil. I am looking forward to hearing what you have to say. <laughs> but so so Feijal goes down, and then there's another punch, and that takes him out. He's motionless, and Kyle lands like two more blows square to his chin. And uh, the referee was out of place. He got in there. I just thought it was – I mean, what do you think? Feijal is going to pop up and come back here? The guy's sprawled out. I don't think you needed to do that. I've seen other fighters kind of – Stay in position, ready to strike, but kind of look at the ref just to make sure he's going to stop it. And Kyle did not do that at all. I mean, I think Dana White would have fired this dude uh, after looking at that, especially with his background, kind of unsportsmanlike. And there's something about Kyle's eyebrows. I don't know if you noticed this. Like, I know we shouldn't, we should not care, but I mean, hey, I talk about their trunks all the time, but it looks like he does his eyebrows. He's just got a weird look. <laughs> uh, but I will say, Seeing Anderson Silva in the corner of Feijao is just, it's like mind-boggling. Like, he's the best fighter in the world at the time. And here he is, you know, right there on the Strikeforce show. Just kind of a weird world we live in. It's like it's like seeing Kenny Omega, you know, uh, at, the, at the side of the WWE match or something like that. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? But, um, <laughs> all right, go ahead. Justify so, this. So my, my, defense, <clears throat> my defense of this is that the referee hadn't simply hadn't stopped it yet. I mean, you're you're instructed to go until the referee stops you. So, I don't. It's one of those things where technically, I don't think he did anything wrong. But from again, from a guy with a reputation like his, who has done some very, I mean, unsportsmanlike is not a strong enough word. It, it just he's done some very very bad things in the cage. You just can't. You have to be aware of that. You have to. And he could have stopped. And he didn't. And and so I I defend it by saying that he technically didn't do anything wrong because the ref didn't stop it. But you could clearly see that Feijal was out. You know the reputation you have. You should have he should have held himself back. That I so I agree with you that he should have stopped. But I also think he can rely on the, you know, well, you go until the ref stops you and the ref hadn't stopped him. So and, and, and I guess to be fair, you know, He's he's jacked up. He's excited. He just knocked out Feijal and Anderson Silva's right there. Yeah, he, he just let it go. So I mean, I guess that's one argument. Adrenaline. You're but in. But he moment. but that adrenaline has gotten him in trouble in the past. Yeah. So yeah. I I think he has an opportunity to kind of rehab his image a little bit if he does hold up hold back hold up. And to his credit, you know, of course he did show respect afterwards. He did go check on Feijal to make sure he was all right and all that. So I I totally see your point. Um, and I, and I agree that he should have stopped, but I think technically he could defend himself too. So, but both, both, both these guys will be back multiple times in strike force and, uh, Kyle would return to face Fabricio Ferdun at Corano versus Cyborg in August while Feja would appear at a challengers event in November before coming back to a tentpole strike force event the following year. It is worth noting that Feja would get a chance 
at uh, at Revenge. Uh, these two would rematch three years later in Strike Force in a very quick bout that had some controversy to it that involved some drug testing, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, but we'll <laughs> we'll we'll get to that down the road, and it may not be who you think it is. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, this brings us to the main card. Opening things up in a 205 pound bout, Mike Whitehead defeated Kevin Randleman via unanimous decision. A two-time national champion wrestler out of Ohio State University and a former UFC heavyweight champion. Randleman was a talented but off-injured star. Uh, he was 17-12. and 12. He had only fought twice since 2005 at this point, and at 37 years old with so many miles on his body, time was clearly running short for the OSU Hall of Famer. The monster had only won three of his of his last ten bouts, but he did hold wins over Maurice Smith, Babalu, Ninja Hua, Pedro Hizzo, and Crow Cop during his career. I... I I'm I'm loath to bring up pride again, but I do have to ask: Did you ever see the Randleman Crow Cop fight in in Pride, or at least the knockout? No, but I've heard about it and I've read about it. I feel like I have seen the clip, but I'm forgetting it right now. Um, yeah, but, it's yeah. it's and it's not like it, just based on the knockout. It's not like this. Oh my God, otherworldly knockout. But to just understand the positioning of Crow Cop and Random at that point, that Random was seen as a guy who had, had seen his best days, you know, was never, uh, you know, outside of winning the heavyweight title in the UFC. I mean, he was a guy that had underperformed often. He would gas, you know, all this stuff. And Crow Cop was, this is the uh, right leg hospital, left leg cemetery, cemetery version of Crow Cop. I mean, this is <laughs> when he was at his absolute peak as a killer. And, random and catches him with a, like a, this kind of baby left hook and then, you know, stuns Crow Cop and then follows up with hammer fists and knocks him out. I mean, it was a massive, massive upset. So, you know, this, this is the guy that, that could, that had, you know, he has a great look and, and could really put on an entertaining bout, but he was again, a guy that just oftentimes would gas out. And this was not a tall guy. I mean, this is a guy that really should have been fighting at 185 pounds, but you know, clearly had some uh, some chemical enhancements, shall, shall we say? And so, just very thickly muscled guy, and and so, I mean, I, it would have been it would have taken some lifestyle changes for him to get down to 185. But his height, it's going to be really hard for him to compete with guys. You know, unless he's going to get them vertical or get them uh, horizontal, get them laid out, it was going to be hard. So um, we did discuss, I did want to mention, we did discuss Randleman meeting up with Scott Coker, having dinner with him on our interview episode. Scott told a very interesting story about sitting down to a meal with, with the monster and him showing off uh, the hole in his armpit that was related to a devastating lung infection that he was dealing with. So make sure you go back. It's our very first interview episode, so make sure you go back and check that out in the archives if you haven't already. Whitehead, for his part, former IFL standout with a record of 23-6. and six. He had won 14 of his last 15 fights. He had wins over Ben Rothwell, who is still active today, UFC pioneer Mark Kerr, and former Strikeforce UFC fighter Krzysztof Szoszynski. His lone loss in that time frame had come at the hands of Babalu at an affliction event. Uh, so he had a chance to play spoiler here, as, as Randleman was definitely the, the name that Strikeforce would want to build uh, in this bout. So let's jump into the fight itself. Man, Randleman was hyped <laughs> up for this one. You could He's just gesturing to the crowd wildly during his intro, getting them excited. Uh, Mark Coleman, you know, longtime coach and best friend of, of Randleman, was behind him saying, screaming, this is your moment, this is your time. And, uh, I mean, Rand- Randleman was just, uh, just hyped to <laughs> hyped to the gills. I mean, he was – Would you say – would you say elevated testosterone? I, I, did, I did not say that. Okay, I, okay. I guess I – 
Although, well, we'll get to drug tests in a little bit. <laughs> okay. uh, but the monster was back. He was ready to roll. Unfortunately, he may have tired himself out with this opening display because <laughs> it did not take long for Randleman to start sucking wind in that first round. I mean, uh, there was a lot of action. Randleman got some really sweet reversals off of Whitehead takedowns, but... Again, as often was the was the issue with him. The cardio just wasn't the wasn't the best, and Whitehead took advantage of that. He took Randleman down in the first and second round, seemingly at will. Although Randleman, to his credit, he did get get reversals and get back up a lot. But Randleman, knowing he was down going into the final round, came out swinging, landed his patented left hook, the same punch that had knocked out Crow Cop and Pride, and he put Whitehead down. But Whitehead was able to persevere. Uh, Randleman, though, and I, it's got to be his cardio, but he did not follow up like he should have. Gave uh, Whitehead a, a chance to recover, and Whitehead got a takedown later. But it was clear the monster run that won the last round. But the judges all saw it, 29-28 for Whitehead, and and he got the decision win. Well, Randleman in this fight, he was thick. I mean, he looked like a box. I mean, he was so square and muscular, but. That may look good on the dating apps, but it is not good for combat sports. I mean, this guy was gassed. He was so tired. He was his mouth was open, like you, you could see him breathing hard and heavy. And uh, you know, Whitehead, he's not in pristine aesthetic shape in this fight, no, but but no. he was he was better conditioned. You know, so there's just something to be said. You can't have that much muscle when you're fighting. It's it, it doesn't help, and and Randleman looked great, but it's just it's too much weight to carry. Uh, the second round, right, was brutal, uh, and I don't mean that necessarily in a good way. It's just like Whitehead was on top of him for most of it. It was kind of boring at times. I mean, it's boring if you want a fight. Uh, this is they're wrestling, so that was kind of exciting to see these two super high level wrestlers, but uh, not much really going on other than Whitehead sort of dominating the position. The third round was really exciting. Uh, Randleman, if he was not so gassed, he would have knocked him out. He had him, but he just like he couldn't put his punches together fast enough to be able to finish him. It's like hurt him. One, two, breathe hard. Wait, Whitehead's already composed, you know. And so it was just kind of unfortunate. Uh, Randleman's a very exciting fighter. He should have been a pro wrestler. I'm sure he's got pro wrestling matches somewhere in Japan. But uh, it was a very good third round. But he's just he's too much muscle. Not enough conditioning, and uh, he's just past his prime at this point. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. I I, I was a big fan of his, you know, being that he's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, a pioneer, you know, and and a guy that just understood the flash and the sizzle part of it. Uh, I did want to mention he was five ten. So, you know, not like there are guys that were 5'10 in the light heavyweight division, but not many, you know. And also, he did have a pro wrestling career, by the way. So, um, yeah, he, he definitely he did do some some pro wrestling over in Japan. And he was a huge he was a huge star in Japan, huge, huge star in Japan. So uh, it, it, it was unfortunate that it never translated to here. And, you know, he unfortunately passed away in 2016. Um, complications of pneumonia were the cause of death. He was only 44 years old. And, and so, you know, obviously very sad. Um, we do see him one more time in strike force and we also see Mike Whitehead in strike force. And I think it's worth mentioning Whitehead knew that he didn't perform as well as he should have either that he, you know, he was shaking his head. He was clearly dejected. He was not happy about the way the fight went for him either, you know? So it's just one of those things where 
their styles were, I think, too similar in a lot of ways and just just didn't work out. But uh, they would both be back one more time in Strike Force, so we'll discuss them a bit more in the future. All right, on to our next fight, 170 pounds. Joe Riggs defeated Phil Baroni via unanimous decision. Uh, you know, being a being a fan of MMA in 2009, I would uh, have definitely been excited for a Joe Riggs Phil Baroni fight for sure. I mean, from the build up to the fight itself, I would have expected this to be a thoroughly entertaining bout. You know, you're talking about uh, where the fighters were were at coming into this fight. Uh, you know, they were they were at different stages in their career. Uh, Phil Baroni had been defeated in three straight fights, which included a stoppage loss at the hands of Frank Shamrock and Strike Force, and then another one against Joey Villasenor in Elite XC. After that, he decided to drop down to 170 pounds in 2008, and this seemed to work as he turned things around and won three straight, including a win over the very tough Olaf Alfonso. Uh, Baroni, of course, always willing to trade. He would he could knock anybody out, so he was a dangerous foe for Diesel, no question about that. But with a record of 13 and 10. Definitely a winnable fight for Joe Riggs. Things have been pretty uneven for Riggs over his last five fights while Baroni was coming in on a winning streak. Uh, Riggs had alternated wins and losses. This included two wins and two losses in strike force, bringing his overall record to 29-10. and 10. His last fight had been a TKO win over Luke Stewart at Destruction. And as mentioned earlier, Riggs had been scheduled to fight Jake Shield at Shamrock versus Diaz, but Shields had decided to take the main event slot against Raleigh, Robbie Lawler on the card that we're discussing right now. And as you can imagine, Diesel was pretty irked by the perceived disrespect. In fact, uh, Riggs' mind seemed to be more on Shields than Baroni. In an interview with MMA Junkie Radio, Riggs said, quote, I wouldn't be starting this stuff, but as a professional fighter, you get o- you get offered to fight someone, you fight them regardless. Unless you have a legitimate reason, you don't want to fight them. Then Shields is going to say that I'm beneath him, bleep him, or bleep that mother bleeper, bleeper Jake, Sh- or bleep Jake Shields. He's got a big bleeping mouth. He's got a big mouth, and he thinks he's way better than he is. I'm not saying that he's not a good fighter. Jake, Sh- Jake Shields is very good. I'll give him that. Just for instance, I saw him on that Bully Beatdown show. He looks like he looked like a bleeping nerd. He's just a bleeping turd. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I got not news. A, not I got a fan. News. I got news for Joe Riggs. What's that? He's he's not in Jake Shields' league. So I could totally see Jake Shields saying, "I'm going to make more money and go fight Robbie Lawler." That's actually a way more dangerous fight because Robbie Lawler could have knocked him out. So, um, whatever, Riggs. I mean, I think. I think Jake Shields has got to make the most money that he can. and uh, I, I agree. Know, yeah, yeah I, I don't necessarily blame Shields except for this. I will say this, is that if you don't want to fight him, at say so at the outset, cause, and you, you're, you may or may not know this, but the way that the timing went down, what the timeline was Shields was offered to fight Riggs and kind of like he was kind of lukewarm to the idea but said okay and said he would do it. And then he gets, you know, Scott Coker or whoever comes along and says, hey, how about this? Instead, main event at 185 against Robbie Lawler, and he jumps at that. So in some ways, it's actually the promotion's fault for offering him a fight and then changing, you know, the offer. Now, you can make a case for Shield saying, well, no, I already accepted the fight with Riggs. He already thinks we're fighting. You know, let's just go ahead with what I already originally said. But you can, again, exactly what you said. He's going to make more money. It's a main event slot. It's a higher profile fight. Why wouldn't he do the middleweight thing? So so I get, you know, I kind of get it from both sides. But Diesel did have a lot to say about Baroni, too, although he was a lot more respectful. He said Baroni had actually called him and asked him to do a catchweight at 175 pounds, but he had turned him down. 
Uh, and he also said that Phil was better than his record suggests, but questioned his cardio and said they need more ways to beat him. And it's worth noting, Baroni came in, I think it was like 168 and a half pounds. So he actually came in well under the 170 pound, uh, you know, uh, uh, weight limit. Yeah. And I'm curious if maybe that affected him during the fight because he just didn't seem, he was just never really able to put it together. But uh, the Naiba came out in his trademark pro wrestling style robe, all smiles, ready to rock. First round's pretty close, although I think I'd give it to Riggs due to the takedowns he got. Uh, Shamrock, it's worth pointing out, gave some really good insight on fighting Baroni throughout the fight, which I thought was a, you know, was a nice touch. Second round was also competitive with Riggs getting a tight triangle choke attempt, although Baroni's arm wasn't in deep enough for him to really be in a lot of trouble. Uh, but the Naiba was definitely getting tired, which was very evident in the third round. Diesel was just kind of picking him up, picking him apart, you know, doing whatever he wanted to, showing off his full array of strikes in the final frame, landing punches, kicks, and knees. Again, pretty much at will, and he, but he was never able to finish Baroni. He developed a pretty good-sized mouse over his left eye as the fight came to a close. Very, very clear-cut decision win for Joe Riggs in the end. Uh, and in his post-fight interview, Riggs said that he broke both his hands uh, in, the, uh, in the first part of the fight which is really a recurring theme in his fights. He'd broken his at least one of his hands in, in a previous strike force fight. Uh, so this was something that would he'd have to deal with a, a good amount of the time. He also reiterated that he really wanted to, to take on Jake Shields, so that was not something he would for, <laughs> he had forgotten about. And unfortunately, that fight would never happen. Uh, Riggs would fight a couple more times in strike force, both in 2010, so we'll discuss him a bit more in the future. But this was it for Phil Baroni inside the Hexagon. Uh, because of his flashy personality and his killer-be-killed attitude during fights, he's continued to get opportunities in his career, including in the UFC, 1FC, and Bellator. Uh, he's gotten only three wins since 2008 against nine losses in MMA. He's also done some submission grappling and bare-knuckle boxing. Uh, he fought Chris Lieben in a bare-knuckle bout in 2018, and to put it mildly, it was embarrassing. did not go well for him. He kept trying to grapple. And ended up getting knocked out. Just not a good look, and you know, not not something to be that if you're Phil Barone, you want to be remembered for. But he's definitely a guy who's made an impact on combat sports. Just as kind of prep for this, I watched or rewatched his knockout of Dave Manet, Dave Manet in Strike, or I'm sorry, in the UFC. I think it was 2003. It was either 2002 or 2003. I think. And I again, we've discussed that a little bit. They uh, came out and and Barone backed him up against the cage with a punch and then just unleashed a barrage of left lefts and rights to the jaws. And he was to the jaw. He was hitting him so hard and so fast that Manet was basically being held up against the cage by the punches. <laughs> and Baroni yeah. jumps up on the, on the cage, you know, in celebration. He's like, I'm the best ever. I'm the best ever. And he's like just screaming with that thick New York accent about, you know, how great he is. And I mean, Dave Manet was a former middle UFC middleweight champion. So it was, a, you know, it was a big win for him for sure. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, you know, his, his career is not the, gone the way that he's wanted it to. Okay. Phil, you need to confess. Phil Baroni is to you what Scott Smith is to me. I mean, you're calling him the Naiba. No, you've been no, talking, said, no, you've no, been no, talking no, about him you're, for months. You're a fan. You're a fan of Scott Smith's. I wouldn't, I am a fan of Phil Baroni's presentation you know, his entertainment, but, but I, you're a fan of Scott in the cage. I'm not a fan of Phil in the cage. Cause he just too often would just not show up. So that's <laughs> must stop you right there. Sport. All right. All right. Well, well, uh, Riggs did, he did great. Uh, he definitely, uh, the shield stuff motivated him. He put on a really good performance, a good tactical 
game plan. And, and, you know, this was all the worst about Phil Baroni. Like, Phil Baroni has those highs, those lows, not a lot in the middle. He just slow, was not good on the ground. You know, I wouldn't call him the most intelligent fighter in the world when he's stressed or under pressure. Fight was a little bit boring at times. Uh, you know, not everything can be a slugfest. But, you know, I think Phil Brody is just a guy who uh, the sport passed by. People got better than him. And he was never able to figure out his, his conditioning. Just either he was too heavy or he cut weight and he was, uh, you know, underweight. It just, it just never quite worked worked out for him. Uh, but uh, Riggs did a good job. Definitely a good night for him. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent, and I, I, I agree with all that. You know, Baroni definitely got past. I he was a guy that if he was still in the early parts of the two thousands, where you could get by on one or two disciplines, you know, probably could have really gone really far. But yeah, it just no ground game, and the conditioning was just always an issue. So, kind of kind of similar to Kevin Randleman in in a lot of ways, except Randleman with his wrestling and Baroni with his striking. So. All right, well, here we are, catchweight bout of 180 pounds. Nick Diaz defeated Scott Smith via submission coming by way of rear naked choke at 141 of the third round. Uh, coming into this after such a war with Benji Raddick at Shamrock versus Diaz, and I cannot emphasize enough, you should go back. If you have UFC Fight Pass, go back and watch that fight between Scott Smith and Benji Raddick because it is a great fight. Mm -hmm. uh, Smith was getting back in the cage pretty quickly for such a, a big, you know, big war and against a very top-tier fighter like Diaz, so it might have seemed ill-advised. However, Smith explained the reasoning on a teleconference with the media promoting Lawler versus Shields. He said, quote, I have a tendency after fights of getting out of shape. I stop my training camp, and half of my training camp is just getting back into shape, and I'm not learning. Although I did get banged up in the Benji fight, I stayed in great shape. I started training three days after the fight, and that's the key to me, cardio, especially when you're fighting a guy like Nick Diaz who has excellent cardio. I wasn't going and asking for a fight right away, but I'm glad I did accept it. Smith also addressed Kung Lee's inactivity as middleweight champion, suggesting that Strikeforce create an interim belt. So that's worth noting. Diaz was, of course, coming off a signature TKO win over Frank Shamrock at the last Strikeforce event, and he had to be the middleweight to watch in that division. Fighting a guy like Scott Smith was a dangerous risk for Diaz, but he was clearly up to the challenge. Uh, so this is, I, I mean, this is a this is a fun fight to watch. If you're a Nick Diaz fan, if you're a Scott <laughs> Smith fan, not quite as fun. But as with his fight with Frank Shamrock, Diaz was was talking trash almost from the outset, and he was keeping his opponent at bay with his reach. And, and Smith was clearly having trouble getting inside early on, and he seemed really rattled. However, he did have his moments with, midway through the first. Diaz just straight <laughs> bared his teeth like through his mouth guard at Hands of Steel, and, and it got a big reaction from the crowd. And Smith reacted and landed a really nice right hand that snapped Diaz's head back. So it's kind of like, hey, you probably shouldn't do that again. Uh, and he followed that up a short time later with a nice waist lock takedown. And at the end of the round, Diaz got a good trip trip takedown of his own. Tough to score that round, but I'd probably give a slight edge to the Stockton native. I uh, did want to mention here a bunch of big MMA stars at this show. I saw Tim Sylvia, Josh Thompson, Gegard Musassi, Josh Barnett, and Fedor in the quote-unquote golden circle, which is that's the seats kind of closest to the cage without being actually cage side. Uh, and in a little interesting tidbit, I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but Fedor was talking to the guy next to him and kind of pantomiming Diaz's looping, peppering, punching style, uh, you know, sensibly given his thoughts on his on that striking style. So I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, but more trading on the feet in the second round with Diaz being more accurate and landing more. 
I could see him start pouring it on, bloodied Smith's face, and then he clearly hurt him with a left hand to the liver. And I think if he had he'd pressed, I think he could have finished him, uh, who was showing less and less head movement as he got more tired. And Smith just had no answer for Diaz, who just never let up with this constant barrage of slow but devastatingly accurate punches. Smith tried to touch gloves at the beginning of the third round, but Diaz wasn't having it. Uh, more Diaz in this one. He just kept hurting Smith with strikes and hands of steel. Eventually, dove for a takedown. That would prove to be his undoing as Diaz secured the right rear naked choke and got the tap. Uh, Diaz got a healthy dose of, dose of booze during and after the fight. But he did show Smith respect by shaking his hand after the after he was announced as the winner, and he also made a point of saying in his post fight interview that hey, you know the the antics are all part of the show. And I wanted to read a quote from from Diaz about Smith uh, that he said on the mic after this fight. He said, "quote I know him. I know his training partners. They're not good friends to have. We work a lot harder than they do. I think he should be training with us. I think he should come down and visit our school, spend time with with a real team." End quote, which is. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, pretty interesting there. Uh, Diaz landed 192 of his 371 punches, which is just an insane clip. So, obviously, Diaz, he had respect for Scott Smith because he sort of saw something in him and thought he should go fight with a different camp. So, that's that's he doesn't give compliments easily. Uh, I like this fight, you know, how much I love Scott Smith just because he's just your average common dude who goes out there and knocks you out. Um I thought it was a good fight. Uh, D, I like I like Nick Diaz too, just because he is unconventional. He he was so busy in this fight. Uh, his conditioning was off the chart, and he he took some punches from Scott Smith that that would have knocked out Benji Raddick. Uh, you know, he took hard shots, so it wasn't as though Scott Smith wasn't able to land. He may not have landed, you know, the perfect flush shot, but he did hit him, and and Nick just sort of looked at him, um, or or Nick did enough to say, "Oh, okay, you hit me. I'm not going to go down, but I'm going to kind of adjust a little bit." Uh, I felt like Scott Smith was too light in this fight. I don't know if that took away from his power. Uh, he was he was thin. And, you know, if you're going to be the, the badass dude who just goes in there and knocks people out, you don't want to look too good. And, he, you know, he, his conditioning looked kind of good. You know, he looked like he had a good physique, but it didn't play well. He just was not as powerful in this fight. And, uh, you know, Nick Diaz is, is – you wouldn't teach his boxing style to anyone – because he he's just so unconventional. He does not throw fast hands. He's very busy, and he just he's like a cat. He just kind of paws at you and keeps you away, and he jabs at you and he throws all these awkward punches. He's you know he'll throw a right hand Superman punch. He'll throw a left jab. Um, he just uh, he'll just have a field day with a guy like Scott Smith. Or Frank Shamrock, who's at the end of his his career, and uh, Scott just didn't have a game plan. Scott was just like, "I'm just going to keep swinging. I'm going to do an occasional leg kick." You can't beat Nick Diaz that way. He's too good. He's too skilled. Uh, definitely underrated fighter because he's so distracting on the microphone. But um, you know, he's he's very good. You know, and he's only lost to sort of the top fighters in the world. The other thing about this was Scott looked like he was in pain when he was in pain uh, his he's got this like contorted face his mouth is open and if you show that kind of vulnerability to a guy like Nick Diaz it's just like smelling blood he's gonna destroy you and so I mean 
Scott Smith looked as though he was uncomfortable. I remember the same thing with the Kung Lee fight when Kung Lee was wrecking him in the rematch with those kicks. You're like, oh, he's done. This is not going to last very long because he's already beat. Um, so I, I I thought it was a good fight. It was competitive. I like both guys. Scott Smith, he tried, but he's never going to win that fight against Diaz. Diaz is just too long, too smart. And got too much attitude. I mean, I think Nick Diaz beats him 10 out of 10 times. It's just a different level. Yeah, I, there's, you know, I talked to uh, to Frank Shamrock about this, um, you know, this, this uh, his fight with Diaz. And because it was very similar to this fight where Diaz, if you watch it, it's like I was watching uh, Scott's face as Diaz is just peppering him with these punches. It's like he never gets a chance to set. Like he never gets a chance to like clear his head and think about what he's going to do. Like Diaz just is just hitting him in the face. Like every second it's, it feels like every second of the fight he's getting hit in the face and it's really hard to think (laughs) I would imagine. And, and, you know, craft a follow a strategy or craft a, you know, uh, like try to adapt or, I mean, it just, what do you do? Shoot in and take down a guy that's got like a, you know, a next level jujitsu game. Like it just, I, there was just, it's exactly what you said that there's no way that Diaz is going to outside of just some crazy punch that Diaz is going to win this fight 10 out of 10 times, you know? So I, I agree with you. I did, as you were talking, I did go back and look, I was like, you know, I'd like, he's got nine law. He's 26 and nine for his professional MMA career. Uh, he's got seven decision losses. He's been stopped by, uh, he's been stopped twice and they were both knockouts. And I quickly kind of looked him up. I know he had one early in his career, the Jeremy Jackson fight, which he lost by TKO early in, in, in his career. Um, I think I may have seen that somewhere at some point, but I don't, I don't remember that fight. So I don't know how legit it was. And then he lost by doctor stoppage to KJ Nunes in elite XC. And that was, I almost positive that was due to a cut. I'm almost positive that was due to a cut. His other ones have all been decision losses, most of them against wrestlers, Sean Shirk, Diego Sanchez, uh, you know, of course, GSP. You know, he, he's got, you know, he's got a bunch of losses to wrestlers who are known for getting decision wins. So few fighters have really outside of just taking him down and, and keeping him from, you know, using his jujitsu. Few fighters have really been able to solve him, you know, and I think that's just Nick is, is he's not mentioned as one of the greatest of all time, but from a style perspective, he's just so hard to beat. You know, I, I, I just, yeah. I mean, and obviously those are some big names to lose against. So, and the, and just quickly, the thing frustrating about that though, is that in those fights, the GSP fights, the Anderson Silva fight, he does fight not to lose. And that's frustrating because when he knows he's better than the other guy, he's a badass. When he knows he's in there with somebody who can beat him, he fights not to lose, and that's frustrating. Like, you know what, Nick? Go get knocked out. Just just leave it all in the cage one time, and let's see what happens. But I think, you know, that's that's important to him, that that if he gets beat, he can always blame the referees. And uh, that's, that's the only frustrating thing I have with some of his fights. It's like, you do not lay down in the cage with Anderson Silva and make it a joke. You want to beat him? Go beat him, but yeah. stop doing which, that. Which, which, you know? which is funny you say because I saw that I was just happened to watch that clip recently, and Big John McCarthy was the referee in there, and Diaz like says something to him like, you know, it points to uh, Silva is like, you know, hey, he's not doing anything, and Big John's like, go get him, go get him, and it's like, yeah, dude, go get him. <laughs> By the way, another crazy thing that Silva fight, you know, that was his last fight. That was six years ago. 
That was we just as we record this. <laughs> That was like a few days ago was the six-year anniversary of that fight. Yeah. That was his first fight in a year and a half. So since 2013, since March of 2013, that loss to George St. Pierre, he's had exactly one fight. Which, so. again, is like just sad. Like, come on, Nick. You know, he only wants to see. Okay, we're not going to do a Nick uh, Diaz podcast. But, like, I don't think he loves fighting. I think he said that. It's a way for him to make money. He likes being a high-level athlete. And... Uh, he fights, he doesn't fight enough to be considered one of the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, we're, we want to we get through the rest <laughs> of this. Uh, Scott Smith would be back to welcome Kung Lee back to the promotion in one of the greatest comeback wins of all time. I know you can't wait to talk about that. Neither can I. Diaz would be back in Strike Force in early 2010. The next fight, heavyweight bout, Brett Rogers defeated Andre Olovsky via TKO, coming away with punches at only 22 seconds of the first round. Rogers was undefeated at 9-0 uh, coming into this one and taking on a, a former UFC heavyweight champion like Ar- Arlovsky was a big test for him. The 30-year-old Arlovsky held a 15-6 and record. He was coming off a knockout loss to Fedor Milenko at Affliction Day of Reckoning in January of 2009. I was actually there in person. I saw wow. it happen. What a crazy knockout. Fedor just blasts Arlovsky with a right hand as Arlovsky was leaving, leaping in the air to, I think, throw like a kick or something or a uh, knee or something like that. And Fedor just perfectly timed that right hand and just put Arlovsky out cold. Uh, it was uh, it, because it didn't happen in the UFC or Bellator. You know, it doesn't get the, you know, the play that you don't see it on a bunch of, you know, hey, remember when type. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or or the opening promo to an event or something like that. So, but it was a very memorable, very devastating knockout. Who owns uh, the Who owns the affliction? I'm pretty sure the UFC does. Oh, pretty but, sure the UFC. Oh, but they're not going to do anything to promote Fedor. Okay. Right, right. There's yeah. no reason to promote Fedor. A most of the fighters that were in affliction were kind of like on a you know the bad list basically for Strike Force <laughs> or, or for UFC. UFC. So. Yeah, I I uh, I'm I'm pretty sure they bought it. I'm actually trying to quickly look it up as we're as we're yeah, talking. Yeah, I, I do. I did see that clip, and that was that was pretty crazy for sure. Uh, that was Fedor just being again badass, badass, best heavyweight in the world, best heavyweight of all time. He went ten years without losing. That was just prime uh, Fedor and his his counter punching and counter fighting. Yeah. Um. It so. It doesn't look. It looks like they just ceased operations. Affliction did as an MMA uh, promotion, and then they became a, a, a UFC sponsor after that. So that's what it. That's what it looks like. Yeah. All right. Uh, anyway, so prior to that loss, Arlovsky had been on a five-fight winning streak, which included wins over Ben Rothwell, Roy Nelson, and future Fedor killer Fabricio Verdun. So he'd been on a good run before P- Fedor put his lights out. Uh, it's worth knowing this bout would be sponsored, quote-unquote, by Affliction, as Arlovsky had one fight left on his three-bout contract with that brand. Um, but they would be going out of business shortly after this card. In fact, it was the next month that they would go out of business. So this it wouldn't it wouldn't really matter anyways. Um, the winner of this bout was slated to get a shot at Alistair Overeem's Force heavyweight belt. But there, there's not much to this one. 22 seconds, it would be quick. Arlovsky landed a leg kick, but that was really all he got. Rogers landed a left to the temple, which backed up the former UFC champ. The Grim followed up with three shots to the face, folding up Arlovsky as Big John McCarthy stepped in. Just pure domination for, for Brett the Rogers Gimmon, uh, Gr- or Brett the Grim Rogers. And I wanted to mention, I noticed Tim Sylvia, who had a trilogy of <laughs> fights uh, with Arlovsky in the UFC, 
pumping his fist in the air in celebration after Rogers win, uh, the, which just kind of cracked me up. Cause it's just like, you know, I remember those fights and, and that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, but this was, uh, you know, it's two first round first two straight first round losses for Arlovsky who had former heavyweight boxing champ, Michael Moore in his corner. So just <laughs> not, not a good look for, for, for the pit bull. Yeah, I had mixed emotions on this. It was really exciting, but also really sad because um, Arlovsky was the better fighter. He's, he's the better overall fighter than Brett Rogers. But Rogers just had this incredible knockout ability at this time. And uh, this was sort of about the time Arlovsky started to slide. Uh, after that Fedor knockout, his chin was never the same. He was not the same here. Uh I don't think Arlovsky prepared for Rogers. He probably thought he'd, hey, who is this guy? He changes tires at the Sam's Club. I'm going to walk through this dude. And and he got caught. And uh, I loved how happy Rogers was. I know Rogers is a, you know, had a really bad end of his career. So I don't want to glorify him too much. But I was really happy for him. Uh, seeing how happy he was. He danced around the ring. Uh, he was clearly like, wow, I actually might be a big MMA fighter, you know, making some money. And, um, you know, it looked like he was going to have some kind of short run at the top because of his, his punching power. He's definitely a rising star. Give Arlovsky credit because he would kind of reinvent himself after this bad streak, gain uh, his way back into the UFC and have some some good fights. I will say, though, Michael Moore in your corner is not who you want if you're Andre Arlovsky. Michael Moore was a former heavyweight champion. He was left-handed. He beat Evander Holyfield. But he was not, um, you know, great. He was not known for being like the greatest stand-up fighter. He was known for being left-handed and having a good knockout punch. So I don't think if you're looking at head movement, Arlovsky was surrounding himself by the best sort of boxer there. And it and it showed. Uh, I... Um, you know, I really love Brett Rogers, and he was in the prime here. But uh, you know, it's, it's all going to end when he meets Fedor. So yeah, which is uh, our you know good segue. Arlovsky would be back a couple more times for Strike Force, but Rogers would return uh, to in his next fight to take on Fedor Milinenko and and welcome him to to Strike Force. I mean, this guy, you got to give it to Rogers. He wasn't afraid of anybody. He would huge step up from a Bongo Humphrey to Arlovsky, and then a huge step up from Arlovsky to uh to Fedor you know take on to take on Fedor and Arlovsky in the same calendar year is that's yeah, pretty amazing so uh but that's gonna be a fun one to talk about I'm looking forward to discussing that one but we have arrived at the main event catch weight bout 180 pounds Jake Shields defeated Robbie Lawler via submission coming by way of guillotine at 202 of the first round uh, this would be the Strike Force debut for both Shields and Lawler. Shields was 22-4-1, had a lot of momentum coming into this bout as he had won 11 straight fights, which included stoppage wins over Hinato Verissimo, Mike Pyle, Nick Thompson, and Paul Daly in Elite XC. Uh, in fact, Shields had not tasted defeat since 2004, so the Caesar Gracie trainee and member of the Scrap Pack was primed for a big showing here. Lawler, for his part, was on, also on a very good run. He had lost only once in his last 10 bouts. He'd beaten Falonico Vitali twice. Had also finished Joey Fias and Yor, Frank Trigg, Ninja Hua, and Scott Smith with the last two taking place in Elite XC. So this was a big-time bout uh, for both sides. I did want to mention neither Lawler nor Shields, were, are, even now, are known for their ability to sell a fight with their words. Lawler is especially soft-spoken. You are so... 
You are so nice, Phil. I know. <laughs> well, it's they're just they're not they're not talkers. That's just the yeah. bottom line. And it, you know they may, they've made it clear they're not. Lawler's made it clear he does not like promoting fights verbally. He just would rather just come in and fights, uh, come in and do the fight. Shields has admitted that at the time he was not a great talker, and you know just as a, a contrast. Meanwhile, on the Strike Force conference call with reports, Phil Baroni is just talking up a storm saying it's been difficult to get off cigarettes in advance of the fight saying that if you're a fight fan, you're a Phil Baroni fan, that you should be on a box of Wheaties. I mean, all this stuff, which by the way, we may have just solved the cardio issues for Phil Baroni. If he was serious about the smoking thing, then that kind of explains everything. Uh, but you know, great stuff from him, even if the Naiba didn't always perform in the cage like he should have. And, you know, just not the case with Lawler or shield. So just kind of a, a study in contrast when it comes to their, uh, see- Phil, approach to selling fights. Phil, we're talking about Phil Baroni again. I rest oh, my case. Oh, shush. <laughs> yeah, maybe, it, maybe I've got a thing for him and I just didn't realize it. But, uh, yeah, for what it's worth, Shields and Lawler, they did have a pretty tense stare down at the weigh-ins the day before the fight, although you've mentioned that you had to interview uh, Robbie Lawler when he was cutting weight. So maybe, you know, maybe he's just, you know, maybe he was just mad about having to cut weight. And so that's why he was staring down. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a 30-minute interview of no no yes no yes i don't know why no that was the interview with with Robert well Lowe. and that that also backs up that he doesn't <laughs> like selling fights verbally so yeah uh but classic stripe striker versus grappler fight here lawler showed some really good takedown d early on stuff stuffed a couple of takedown attempts from shields they then get clinched against the cage before separating shields he just looks so uncomfortable in his striking stance i mean he just he looks so just pedestrian but then he actually did land he threw and landed some pretty good leg kicks and and so are pretty good kicks so you know it didn't he didn't look comfortable but but he did you know look like he did pretty well the end came when shield sort of kind of like lunged at lawler and lawler grabs him and leaves his neck exposed and shields just being the master grappler that he is saw his opportunity and latched on with a very tight guillotine choke and Lawler appeared to be trying to slam his way out of it, but he was going to sleep and he knew it and he tapped out instead. Yeah, this was one of the better performances by Jake Shields. I mean, his he uh, quite honestly, his stand-up reminds me of CM Punk's stand-up, like the way he throws his punches. Like you're just like Jake Shields, how can you be so good at everything? But you're you're the way you throw punches, it's like it's a foreign language or something. I I just don't understand it. But in this fight, he was probably the best that I've seen him. He was able to, you know, put up some defense and, uh, you know, kind of force the fight to the ground. Um, he, you know, he it was coming at him from angles. He was working at it. He had some good leg kicks, some hard jabs. Um, Lawler, uh, you know, he couldn't really anticipate where Shields was coming from. So he was never quite comfortable setting and trying to knock Shields out. And, I mean, Shields is so good. He'll just take you down. It doesn't matter who you are. He'll take you down and he'll smother you. And that's what, you know, we saw here. It was nice to see Jake young and hungry. Uh, good, young, hungry fighter. And he can't talk a lick. He definitely needed Paul Heyman or somebody in his corner. I mean, <laughs> he needed he needed a mouthpiece a, for sure. Yeah, somebody to cut a promo because he's very good. I mean, he he's he, you do not want to be in the ground with him. Uh, 
You know, but he did his talking in the cage, so it is what it is. He he was, you know, he's not going to go down as one of the best either because he choked in his big fights, you know. But he he's very good, and he's definitely one of the best to ever compete in in strike force. And uh, Lawler Lawler would reinvent himself in the UFC. I mean, he would go on to have a way better career than Jake Shields, and you never know it from this night. But but you know, Lawler was just tough, son of a gun, and. Uh, you know, I like this fight. These these are good young athletes doing their thing, and uh, it was, you know I enjoyed this fight. And you know, Jake's not the greatest talker, but his jujitsu is masterful. Yeah, absolutely. And as short as it was, uh, it was it was definitely an entertaining fight. And you know, Shields for his for, for his credit to his credit immediately showed Lawler respect. And but what what a massive win for the Bay Area fighter. And in his post fight interview, Shields said that Kung Lee was a good friend of his, but he wanted the belt. And you know. Uh, he looked like he was in line for it. Of course, both these competitors would be back in strike force with Lawler returning to take on Melvin Manhoff in a brutal fight the following January. That is a nasty finish, and that's a that I can't wait to talk about that one. Well, well, that Shields, was a great knockout, yeah. Yeah, I can't good. wait to watch that and rewatch that and and, uh, and discuss it. While Shields would take on Jason Mayhem Miller for what would end up being the vacant strike force middleweight title in November, uh, Kung Lee would finally relinquish the belt without ever defending it. Uh, in September, so a couple months after this event, and then again, Shields would match up with Mayhem to take on uh, to take him on to for that belt. So that that's going to be an interesting uh, event for sure, and that leads us eventually to Strike Force Nashville with the huge brawl and all that stuff. But uh, nothing. We we mentioned uh, Kevin Randleman the way that he looked and you know his past issue with with you know with drugs and with steroids and that sort of thing. But nothing was released on drug testing or salaries for this event, so we don't have that information unfortunately. So I, I don't know if anybody was tested or not. I don't know if anybody popped or not. We have no idea because that that information was never released. Thank you Missouri State Athletic Commission or whatever they're called there for not giving us that information. Uh, but you know, recapping things, another great event. I think it's worth mentioning that. Uh, I, I felt like Gus Johnson showed pretty marked improvement in this one as far as knowing the MMA game. I, I actually think he added to that a little bit. So I, I thought he did a good job while allowing Morrow to really steer on commentary. So they just seemed more comfortable kind of finding their roles. And I thought, again, Frank also did uh, provide some good info and, and added to the color. So I, I felt like the commentary was, was better overall in this one. Also think that it's very clear Strikeforce definitely had stars on their hands in Brett Rogers, Nick Diaz, and Jake Shields. While the Kevin Randleman signing looked like a mistake right off the bat, unfortunately, and Scott Smith's star had lost some luster, but he would rebound. So just another night of exciting fights and really building up towards some even bigger events. But uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was good. Josh, what did, what did you think of the event? This was a really good show. Uh, I love the Showtime era of Strikeforce, and we're right here in its heyday high quality production great commentary good fights jake shields emerged as a star nick diaz continued to attract a lot of attention for his in in cage abilities and his wacky personality and even scott smith he had a he had a really good effort so even though he lost he was still very bookable because People want to see him fight. You know he's going to go and leave it all inside the hexagon. So um, even though I was bummed that he lost, I was kind of happy that the better fighter Nick won. And, and Scott Smith was would come back. He'd get booked again. Um, Lawler uh, clearly could have done better. So we knew that this wasn't like the end of him. Like you knew that something was going to happen and uh, he'd be back. And, and Brett Rogers, he, I mean, he's looking like Francis Naganu. Like he's just like 
who is this guy? Like, he's just going to knock you out. You know, he, he was scaring people like that um, at this time. And Fedor would put a stop to that, but not before Fedor would almost get knocked out himself. So we'll right, talk about right. that, you know. So, so you know, I give Brett Rogers just all the credit for coming from nothing and being a star on Showtime on CBS for a little bit of career. But the fight game is... Man, it is unforgiving, and it'll it'll beat you up so bad if you make the wrong decisions. Uh, but this card, Strike Force, in its prime, and as we know, Phil Scott Smith, the hands of steel, will be back, and I cannot <laughs> wait for the miracle in San Jose. <laughs> That's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, as we record this, looking ahead, we're still working on what our next episode is going to be. So stay tuned for information on that uh, after that we'll be covering Corano versus cyborg which was such a histor- an historic event as it was the first major mma card in north america to be headlined by a woman's fight in addition babalu sobral would defend his light heavyweight belt against gegard musasi while gilbert melendez would defend his interim lightweight belt against mitsuhiro ishida who had handed el nina his first loss in addition fabricio verdun would make his strike force de- debut we'll also discuss why nick diaz joe riggs and josh thompson were all scheduled but then unable to fight on the card so so much to get to on that one i am looking forward to that i was there live and in person for that event so i'm i'm very much looking forward to diving into that uh, i'm also hoping that you you have followed us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the hexagon pod. Uh, you can also reach me at Phil at inside the hexagon.com. would love to get your feedback. And if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get the show, it helps others to find our podcast. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?